Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. To dedicate uh, Piper to the Lord and to have you guys be a part of that and say, hey, here's the deal. I'm coming alongside and I'm like, I'm laboring in this for you. I don't know if you guys got that or not, but you just committed to something. All right. Some of you are like, that happened so quick. I don't even know what I just got into. Well, we can talk more about it later if need be, but you're in now. Okay. It's too late to turn back. So, um, so we've got that element, right? That just says uh, of, of the Lord that he is good and that he is faithful Um And this morning, we actually celebrate three years of being a church. And so um, the Lord is super faithful in that he planted a body of believers here um, on this campus three years ago to be about the work of making and training disciples, sending them to engage our neighbors and nations with the gospel of Jesus. That's what we're about. Um, And the Lord has been um, just really kind and really generous um, to display his commitment to that work. And so um, we're kind of mentioning that this morning, like we're acknowledging uh, the first Sunday of each year is actually our like birthday. Um, Next week, we're going to, we're going to celebrate that a little bit more. And so I invite you guys to come back next week. Um, We're going to have some donuts out front, some time to hang out. We're going to talk a little bit about and hear from some of you uh, about what the Lord has done, like in your life through uh, this local church. We see the importance of the local church and the value in her uh, for our lives and for our community, right? For the world. And so um, so we'll be doing that next week uh, because of all the moving elements this week, including our kicking off a new series. Now, um, as some of you perhaps remember, we kicked off last year by working our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, we're starting this year off in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so it's not nearly um, as as long, perhaps as daunting, right, to, uh, to many of you, although last year was a pretty easy star, open up to page one of your Bible, right? Uh, we're gonna have to work a little bit harder this year. Um, but, but we're excited, man, to begin this new series, uh, this new series through Paul's letter. Uh, to the Ephesians. By grace, you have been saved. This is a, a theological foundation that is affirmed by Paul in this first, uh, in this, this letter that he writes to, um, to the Ephesians. It is profoundly important to understand purpose, is it not? As parents, um, this is more clear in this season than any up until this point. I feel like uh, Courtney and I are constantly not only providing instruction uh, to our children and for our children, but explaining the why behind it. Here in his letter to the Gentile Christians of Ephesus, Paul, from prison, writes to display the scope of God's eternal plan for humanity. The first three chapters focus on what Christians ought to believe, while the last three unpack the implications of God's grace to the church. As he drives home in these first 11 verses, the cause for our worship as God in Christ shapes our expectation in this life and the next. That was a mouthful. But this is what we're going to observe through these these first 14 verses this morning. Paul driving home, establishing, affirming cause for worship. 
of God in Christ as he shapes our expectation for this life as well as the next I was having a, a number of conversations this past week. We were away at the Passion Conference. Um, those of, uh, of, of those in the room who look a little bit a little bit downcast this morning, it's because we got like no sleep, okay, um, for for a couple of days. Um, but but I was able to talk with a few people while we were away about our kicking off this letter this morning, knowing that we're tackling the first 14 verses. But as Josh shared with me in the back before, and I affirm, and we could spend the next month talking through the first four verses. We're going to try to bite off a little bit, a little bit more than that this morning, Josh. But, um, but he's absolutely right. I told a number of you while we were away preparing for our time in this letter as we kick it off here in 2020 um, that, man, I just feel like I need to tell everybody, like, buckle in. Okay, like, like kind of settle in and prepare yourself because this is um, this is an incredibly beautiful, rich, deep letter from Paul to the Christians in Ephesus. It's one that I feel like that each week as we approach it, it's going to be as though we are drinking from a fire hydrant, right? Like we're just like mouth there right on the opening and somebody just cranks it on and we just are, are kind of like knocked back every week, okay? This is a little bit about what it's going to feel like. It's a little bit what it's going to look like. And so, um, so having said that, it would be a great time for us to transition into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, right? So if you have your Bible, um, open up to Ephesians 1, turn on to Ephesians 1. You can follow along um, on the screen perhaps as well if that would be um, beneficial. But we're beginning here in, in verse 1, and, and Paul's establishing his authority and the necessity of his work. This is what Paul does as he, as he begins the letter. It's not an altogether uncommon uh, introduction from Paul in one of his letters. It sounds very familiar, but it's super intentional. Look with me at verse 1. Paul begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By what? Well, by the will of God. To the saints, believers who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul establishes here in verses 1 and 2 his authority while reflecting the necessity of his work. As he makes clear in his introduction, Paul functions from or lives out his role of apostle. A unique position reserved for 12 men given to establish the church. Table Talk Magazine, a publication of Ligonier Ministry, says the following of this particular position. An apostle, they write in biblical terms, is a representative of his master. He speaks with all the authority of the one that he represents, of the one that he represents. It was necessary for God to establish a band of such men in order to ensure the writing of the New Testament and to lay the foundations of the church. Foundations once laid do not need to be laid again. That would be silly, wouldn't it? Pastors and teachers in the church today have authority, but they do not have the same degree of authority as the original apostles. 
Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 states that to be an apostle, one had to have been a member of the band of disciples from the beginning or an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. Therefore, like Paul's position is a most unique one created by God in order to continue the construction of the foundation of the church begun with her cornerstone, that is Christ, his teaching, death, and resurrection. In Paul's case, this was a position that he was elevated to by a resurrected Jesus himself as later affirmed by the other apostles. So why is this important? Why do we spend the first four or five minutes of our gathering nailing home the the significance of Paul's authority? Two reasons. Number one, Paul's apostleship clarifies from his perspective, his role, how he lives, and what he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, Paul writes the following. He says, For I preach the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, Paul writes. And then listen to what he says here. For necessity is laid upon me. Therefore, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He would go on to say in verse 17 that he is entrusted as a steward of the gospel. Whereas Paul once lived as an enemy of Christ and a persecutor of his church, he now functions under the divine direction of Jesus. Writing with his divine authority as the spirit inspires words such as these. Having been saved from the penalty of sin and transformed by kindness and grace. All of this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. You can read it for yourself. Not only does Paul's role provide clarity for his function in redemptive history from his perspective. That is the story and plan of God to save sinners in Christ. But it clarifies for others how they understand understand Paul's role and how they are to live. Let's say it this way. How How does this benefit us? How does our understanding of Paul's authority benefit you and I? How does it benefit the original audience as they find themselves camped before this letter? Paul's apostleship clarifies for you how you are to live and what you are to say and be about. We find ourselves like on the, on, the, on the precipice, right? Entering into, having begun a new year. How many times as we, as we begin these, these new starts, right? Do we ask questions like, man, what am I going to be about? What is this next year going to look like for me? Man, what better place to find ourselves this morning then in Ephesians chapter 1, where, where Paul says, hey, I am an apostle, right? And, and therefore, the words that I, that I have penned that have, been, that have been extended to you ought to inform who you are, what you are about, what you say, and how you live your life. 
without any other insight into the context of this letter. Readers, in light of the position and authority of Paul, by the will of God, verse 1, let's not forget that, Paul emphasizes it, are to come to it with a heart of humility. We come to God's word. We come to Paul's instruction as it is extended to us here in a posture of humility with a desire for insight, with a desire for correction and and edification and growth. And whatever Paul has to say to the Ephesians over the next six chapters, right? My desire is to to hear it, to, to learn, to come around his intent and to respond appropriately. Understanding this, that Paul speaks with the authority of Christ so that we might know Jesus. And look more like him. Bless you. So as we journey through this letter. As we journey through letters after this letter. As you engage with God in his word. Our understanding and affirmation of its authority. Given that the primary author is the Holy Spirit. Welcomes a posture of humility and commitment. I don't know how you came in here this morning. But I know how we ought to be now. Right? If we were to, to, to physically before one another represent a humble position, we would all just take a knee. We would, stay, we would be on our knees, right? Hands out and face bowed to the Lord, making ourselves small, understanding that he is big and that his word is powerful. We embrace a, a posture of humility. We embrace a commitment to truth over preference or perception. Did you get that? Paul's authority says to us as we come to his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, as we work our way through our read through this year, how many people are, we're five days in. How many people are still reading through the Bible this year? Amen. Don't give up and don't be afraid to start now. How do, we, how do we read through the Bible? Well, we read through in a, in a posture of humility. We desire it to inform what we believe how we think and live, we commit ourselves not to our preference or to our perceptions, but to truth. What God says about who you are and and what he has done for you. For, as we see here in Ephesians chapter 1, a specific purpose. And what he says about his desired passions for his people in light of this, God gives us this heart. God gives us faith and a, and a hunger for his word. We, we pray and we ask the Lord to give us a hunger for his glory as we submit to the authority on display here through the Apostle Paul. Here in verses 1 and 2, Paul establishes the authority that he possesses given by who? Not by Paul. This isn't an authority that he, that he takes up and totes himself, but it is an authority that is given to him by Christ Jesus, victorious over death and hell, so that everything that he has to say after might fall upon informed hearts made fertile by God. 
Immediately after his introduction, Paul presents the Ephesians with three causes. That is, three catalysts for their worship of God and ours. Why ought we worship God? I got Paul's authority, man. We've, we've drilled that one, right? But why worship God? Paul, Paul builds this for us here in chapter 1. Fueled, worship, fueled, not by circumstance. Worship fueled, not because things are going really well. And perhaps in this season, you find yourself living comfortably, sitting, as the kids say, on fat stacks, right? Free from hardship and any degree of difficulty. No, our our worship is fueled by these spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ. This is what Paul begins to say in verse 3. Let's look there together. Our adoption, Paul will say, serves as cause for worship. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, who has what? Well, who who has blessed us? who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here, Paul emphasizes the mediation of Christ and what one commentator describes as an outburst of praise. Jesus stands between us and God, writes Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he considers this role of mediator. Jesus is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality. Since the whole world was created through him and unto him, he is the sole mediator in the world. This is who Jesus is. He is our our good shepherd. He is our rescuer. He is our redeemer. He frees his people from the power of sin. And he mediates on our behalf for us before the Father. Praise be to God, verse 3. Who is worthy as he has bestowed on his people this familiar term in Christ. The one who alone is able to stand in the gap. The one who is alone able to reconcile our relationships with God and with one another. Every spiritual blessing. Listen to what Paul does here. This is beautiful, man. This is powerful. Paul makes a distinction here in verse 3. He makes a a distinction between the blessings referred to in verse 3 and material blessing, which also happens to be given by God to those who love and obey him. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. In Christ, Paul writes, God chose for himself before the world's foundation a people. Remember what we're saying here, okay? We're saying that these, that these truths inform and create a posture of humility and an attitude of worship to God. Practically speaking, this is, what, this is what Paul is saying here. Practically speaking, in eternity past, outside of time, right? 
like space as we know it. God, with intentionality and divine foreknowledge, decided, get this, decided in himself to rescue you from the penalty of your rebellion. God takes the initiative to redeem the believer from sin and death. This is not, Paul says, a whimsical decision of the Father on high, but something that is planned out all along in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 4. Where does this flow from? In love, Paul writes. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to, it only gets more and more rich, right? It's like we, we get some and we're like, oh, wow. And then it's like, we can't even catch our breath before we just get like, like obliterated with like this next wave. According to the purpose of his will, verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is that we are blessed in Christ. Take note, out of the abundance of his love, God chose those who belong to him. And as a result, the Christian can take no credit for their salvation. But now lives, now this is really important. Okay, we're talking like, we're talking theology and we're talking application here. Okay, these two are about to like collide, all right? The the Christian now lives as a shining example of humility and forgiveness in the world because he understands, because she understands the forgiveness that he or she has received is in no way connected to his or her own work. This is the purpose Right of God choosing his people, F.F. Bruce writes, that they should be holy and blameless in his presence, both now in earthly life and ultimately when they stand before him. And in Christ for the Christian, there is this, this moral purity that we now possess. There's this desire to embrace the biblical, biblical qualification for morality. For those who would say morality is dead, I would say, no, it's not. Perhaps you're just looking to the wrong source of, of your informing of a moral position. God creates for himself a people who are, who are living Right? We were, we were dead. Paul was dead, but now he has been made alive. This is what God does. He rescues. He plucks. He saves. He provides compass and, and freedom as we are, verse 5, beneficiaries of adoption. Man, what a beautiful word. Amen? What a beautiful word. Adoption through Christ, through Christ into the family 
of God. All, verse 6, for what purpose? Well, to the praise of his glorious grace. This reality that Paul talks about here. I mean, this is, this is the, the greatest imaginable work of grace. I, I, I was thinking this past week about like what this looks like as we, as we compare um, opportunity for observance of grace in the scriptures. And I was thinking about this, right? That, that I think here, like we are observing through God's work in Christ to save for himself a people, a grace that is greater than the formation of Adam. In that God has plucked the Christian from his natural condition. From our rebellion, from our sin, God plucks us, right? He, 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 he focuses, right? And, and divinely rescues a work that is made possible as Paul is reiterating again and again and again and again, as we will reiterate again and again and again and again, a work that is possible in Christ. The supreme object, the supreme subject of the Father's love and the means by which saving grace is extended. We are made to be recipients of such grace as we look to and trust in Christ. I mean, God sets his sights on us, Paul says. Outside of any contribution that you might make. And he said this. He said, you belong to me. What is a Christian? The great theologian J.I. Packer writes in his work, Knowing God, the question can be answered in many ways. You would probably answer it. Right? We would have a, if we were to survey the room, we would have like a plethora of different answers, hopefully all the same substance. But the wording might be, might be slightly different. Listen to, what, listen to what Packer has to say. He says this. He says, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. In verses 3 through 6, Paul provides a rich and accurate foundation for our understanding of who our Father is and who we are, having been adopted into His family. We are now a people marked by holiness, a people marked by blamelessness, a people marked by love, reflecting His character in and to the world as well as to one another. We are passionate then about pursuing Christ and, as we have said over recent weeks, wearing Him. Right? We, we, we cloak ourselves in Christ. We get up every day and go, hmm, buffalo plaid today, or am I going red and yellow? Like, what am I doing? No, we stand up, we go, no, we wear Christ. Right? We cloak ourselves in Christ as the Father. Displays his, his fatherly nature in Christ. We show the fatherly nature of God to our own children and others through our interaction, discipleship, and care. We're talking practicality here. We're talking application. As Christians, understanding that we have been adopted by the Father through Christ, we advocate for certain practices that run in this vein, like adoption. 
like foster care. Let's be clear, adoption is not a practice reserved for those who cannot have children for whatever reason. Instead, it is an act of love that screams to culture, look, this is what God does for us in Christ. This is what it means to do this. It's something so beautiful. That's why we celebrate it the way that we do or ought to. That's why the Christian ought to to give themselves in prayer towards this work and and opportunity perhaps for participation in it. Why? Well, because it is a display to the world of what Christ has done for us. The work of the Father through the mediator. The gospel challenges the Christian to lean into works like these. Let's continue rattling off some of these, these application points, right? The gospel glories God. The gospel glories God because it speaks of his work from beginning to end, not ours. The only thing that we bring to the equation is our need. Finally, our adoption gives rise to celebration of God. If you're in this room this morning and you know Jesus, if you you call God Father, if you're a Christian, understand this, that we are not made to be arrogant by this point. We are not made to to be proud as though we have figured it out while others are simply too dense to grasp such holy things. No, we worship. We give ourselves in obedience to the call of Christ to share with others, believing this, believing that God remains committed to his work to save through the power of the gospel as he applies it to the hearts of an otherwise separated and hopeless people. Belief that there are people in this room that at this moment don't know Christ, that God has chosen to set his salvific love upon as he leads you to hear and now confess your sin and need for Christ. Man, belief that there are are people in your building. Or across your street, people in the, in the cube next to you. Anybody working in a cube? Anybody doing cubicle life anymore? Is that still a thing? I don't know. We're so common workspace anymore. We've got a few head nods. That the person in the cube next to you or, or your macro class who don't know Christ but have been chosen in Christ by God will now use you. And your obedience to bring to fruition a passion that began in eternity past. Celebration of the finished work of the son, Jesus, and enjoyment of him forever. These are just a couple of the ways. These are just a couple of the ways that we see and celebrate the truth of our adoption. We've got to pick up the pace a little bit. Is everybody okay so far? Here we go, Nia. Not only does our adoption in Christ cause the Christian to worship and the skeptic to take note and join in, but our redemption and final reconciliation serves as cause for our praise. We see this in verses 7 through 10. So we have a a new identity in Christ. We are recipients of an eternal reward, salvation through him. But how has all of this happened? How are we acquired? Well, verse 7 answers this question for us. In him, we have redemption. Through what? Through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his what? His blood to be received by faith. We say along with with William Cowper, and there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Paul here emphasizes the riches of God's grace in verse 7. The question is why? Is he, is he drawing out the, the, the quality or the quantity of God's grace? Well, in a way, both. The expectation for the Christian in this life and the next in light of this reality, our adoption, and the assuredness of the final reconciliation of all things. Charles Spurgeon writes this in a sermon that he preached speaking of God's riches and grace to the Christian and the expectation of response. He says this, he says, For as I take it, he, that being Paul, looked to the perpetuity or the unending enjoyment of the gospel for the Christian, not only through the ages which have already elapsed since the first advent of our blessed Lord, but throughout the ages after he shall have come a second time. Listen to what he says here. He says, Eternity itself will not improve upon the gospel. Holy cow. Eternity itself cannot approve, improve upon the gospel. I remember working through a, a systematic theology text in, in seminary uh, by an author that it doesn't matter. I, won't, I, I mean, just there's no reason that the content is more important. But he says this, essentially, he says, for the Christian, there is this expectation that we are to never grow tired or weary of celebrating the glorious news of God reconciling sinners to himself through Christ. We are never to grow tired of this news. You look forward into eternity future. And there is this expectation that if you do any one thing for long enough, eventually you will become weary of it. And you go, man, an eternity of worshiping Jesus, an eternity of celebrating the gospel, an eternity of speaking of his good works extended to us in Christ. Hey, that sounds exhausting. Only this particular author says this. He says, man, we will never grow tired. Because we will never reach the depths of the gospel, right? We will never reach the, the depths. We were just imagine that we're swimming down and down and down and we're getting deeper and we're getting deeper. And we're celebrating, right? And we're learning these new, these new attributes and, and, and this new perspective and this new way to see and look and celebrate. And we will never exhaust. Spurgeon says something similar. He says eternity itself will not improve upon the gospel when all the saints, picture this. When all the saints shall be gathered home, they shall still talk and speak of the wonders of Jehovah's love in Christ Jesus. And in the golden streets, they shall stand up and tell what the Lord has done for them to listening crowds of angels, principalities, and powers. Walking, strolling down streets in the new creation. Just gathering crowds together to go, man, listen to this. This is incredible. Let us remind ourselves of the good news of Christ. 
Man, what a beautiful picture. Man, the power of the blood of Christ to save the most desperate sinner by his abundant grace. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Sin results in division. You've experienced this undoubtedly. You probably have broken relationships right now that you could point to that say these relationships are broken the way that they are as a result of sin. Sin divides, sin separates. It creates separation from God. It creates hostility in creation. Here, Paul points towards the purposes of God in Christ hear this to bring that which has been separated back together uniting in the fullness of time all things in heaven and on earth to himself and one another and we see here the the death of hostility death is dead hostility dead conflict and sadness dead all things existing in Christ as they were created to. This reality, again, we're building a foundation for Christian worship. Adoption, worship. God's reconciliation in Christ of all things, worship. Are we, are we, are we getting a common theme here? Worship. In addition, verses 11 through 14, the assurance of our heritage is cause for worship. Look with me at verse 11. We're continuing to trace our way through. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. How? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And while God's instruction might be disobeyed, his ultimate purposes cannot be frustrated. Verse 12. So that we, Paul writes, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also. So there's a, he's dividing people. He's distinguishing between people here. In him, you also, he says to the Ephesians. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Again, to what? To the praise of his glory. In verses 12 and 13, Paul highlights the inclusivity of the gospel of grace, right? For the inheritance, purchase, and extended through Christ, adoption and citizenship in the kingdom are reserved not only for Jewish believers or to the first to hope in Christ, verse 12, but as he says in verse 13, to you also. Paul says this, he says, listen, this was obviously a gift that was extended first to a particular people that God designated and assigned to function within this very particular purpose in redemptive history. But it doesn't stay there. It's not isolated there. We get glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament, in which God sets his sights upon those who are outside of the tribe to draw them into community and fellowship. Paul says this to the Ephesians. He says, hey, like my people, my tribe, man, it was extended to us first, but it's not only for us. 
but it's for you. You know why that's good news? Because I would venture to guess that most of us, if not all of of us in this room, are Gentiles. (laughs) Not Jew by heritage, not Jewish. Beneficiaries of the kindness of God in eternity past to reconcile, to bring back for himself, for his own possession, a people, not from one tribe, but from every tribe, not from one tongue, but from every tongue across this globe as a means by which he glorifies himself. This is the work of the gospel. This is the commitment of God. The portion of God is not confined or limited to Jewish believers, man, but to put to Gentiles, to the Ephesians, and to you. As we close out our time, I want us to narrow in on this reality. Right? The, the foundation of Christian worship is clearly God's work in Christ. God's work in Christ to save us and to provide for us an assurance through the presence of the spirit of an eternal inheritance. He says, you have the spirit, the spirit of God. He lives in you. And he is evidence by way of his presence, the comfort that he provides, the intimacy that he calls us into with the father, the celebration that he produces in us of Christ. He is evidence of God's faithfulness and commitment to mission, to his work, to accomplishing his purposes and to fulfilling his plan. A perspective that leads to praise. This is a perspective that Paul is building. He is making an argument for it. And it all leads to praise. It leads us to to worship and and to celebrate. Paul's reminding his readers who they are, whose they are, and how they have arrived here. And in each and every instance, the catalyst for benefit is found through God's initiation, his work to adopt, his laying on of grace, him securing by blood the redemption of sinners, lavishing on us, verse 8, all wisdom and insight, having made known the mystery according to his good pleasure, verse 9. He purposed in him to head up all things in Christ, verse 10, having predestined according to his purpose. The blood of Jesus covers and unites creation with God as we are called to harmony in Christ. We have assurance of this indescribably good news and a secure eternal reward that reaps earthly benefits here and now. These first 11 verses, man, they just serve as a warm-up lap. It's just a warm-up life. Like we're just still stretching. As Paul makes this case for Christ reconciling all creation to himself. In light of all of this, the Christian is to, to live and express gratitude 
to our great God. If you're here this morning as a skeptic to the faith, I want to talk to you for a minute, okay? Just a minute because we're landing, okay? Everybody's like, whoa, we already said that. I know, one second, okay? Just give me a minute more. My confidence in the biblical quality of God's sovereignty, that is his power, that is his his purpose, leads me to believe that you are here for a reason. And that's because God has, has chosen you in Christ. Right, that he is, he is calling you in this moment to see your sin. That he's calling you in this moment to, to turn from it and to confess your faith in Christ. The sufficiency of his death and the power of his resurrection to secure your forgiveness. The call to the skeptic is simple. Whether that's here in this room or, or again in these various, these various avenues by which you interact with people throughout the week. The call is simple, man. Believe and be saved. This is God's desire as he has purchased you in the son. These truths, man, these truths birth worship. Why do I keep hitting on that? Because Paul keeps hitting on that, right? Because Paul's hitting on it and we are about to apply it. We're applying it now as we worship by way of our attentiveness. And perhaps our attentiveness at this point is beginning to wane thin. Good news, you're about to stand up. So so prepare yourself. We worship, having been captured by grace, we give ourselves to the passion of God, revealing or revealed in his desire for the glory of his great name. This is God's desire and this is our response. This is our application. And so let's ask God in humility to lead us towards this as he provides boldness, strength, and confidence for our obedience. We're going to worship our king. I'm going to invite these guys to come forward and we're going to, we're going to come to the tables. I'm going to say something about that in just a moment, but I want us to spend a moment just praying and offering our gratitude to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Take a moment and pray where you are. And and then I'm going to, I'm going to close this. And then I'm going to say something about what we're about to participate in as a people. Father, your word leads us to express our gratitude to you for what you have done for us in Christ. Uh, Paul's writing here in Ephesians chapter 1 calls us into this, um, this, this understanding of your intentionality noticing us and and loving us and calling us 
we receive adoption. Not because we have it all together and, and not because we clean ourselves up, but because, because you, to the glory of your name, had decided long ago to rescue for yourself a people that would lead us us all to take note and to celebrate because we understand again that we have done nothing to 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 merit our adoption as we look ahead to this new year help us to to begin here help us to begin with with this idea with this confidence that the same work that you began in us, you will bring to completion. The, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us speaks of this reality. We can, we can move forward out of this place in confidence, but we, we move forward not only in confidence that you're going to bring us along, but that you're going to use us to be about the work of, of bringing others along as well. Give us a, a heart of humility. Give us a heart of worship. Give us a spirit of boldness. Give us a a love for the gospel and a desire to, to know you in your word and to submit to what you have to say, not only about who we are, but about, about how we are to go about living our lives. We love you and we celebrate you because you are a God who is is worthy of all of our love and all of our celebration because you have lavished your love on us in Christ. Help us to respond in light of these truths now as we prepare to come to the tables, as we prepare to, to give generously because you are a generous God. Help us to sing well. Help us to sing out of this heart. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.